is taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 18, verses 14 through 22. Hear now the reading of God's holy and infallible word. Now when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone as judge and all the people stand about you from morning until evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, it comes to me, and I judge between a man and his neighbor and make known the statues, statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you are doing is not good. You will surely wear out both yourself and these people who are with you, for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now listen to me. I will give you counsel, and God be with you. You be the people's representative before God, and you bring the disputes to God. Then teach them the statutes and the laws, and make known to them the way in which they are to walk and the work they are to do. Furthermore, you shall select of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place these over them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. Let them judge the people at all times, and let it be that every major dispute they will bring to you, but every minor dispute they themselves will judge. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's turn to one more passage in Second Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Second Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Paul is, the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn, away from their, ear, turn their ears away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things and endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. This is the word of the Lord. Um, in a minute, you would, if you would, you could just keep your Bibles and turn them over to 1 Timothy 5 and just hold your finger there. We're going to go there in a few minutes. We are looking at the offices in the church. And la the first sermon we started with Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. And we said, now we're going to choose our officers. We have to choose our pastor. We have to choose our elders, our deacons. And we said before we actually choose our, our ministers and our elders and our deacons, we have to be a certain kind of people. And that passage in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 tells us we need to be a, a united people, a people who are one with one Lord, one, one God, one Father, one, one Lord Jesus Christ, one Spirit. And we are to be people... As one people, we are to be gentle people, humble people, patient people. 
We're to be tolerant people, loving people, and diligent to pursue peace. These are the kind of people we're to be, and then we will choose our officers. And last week we said that Christ is the one who gives gifts to his church, and he laid out four offices. He laid out the office of apostle, prophet, evangelist, and pastor, teacher. The apostle and the prophets lay down the doctrine of the church, and it's found in the Word of God, and those gifts pass off the scene. The last two officers or gifts to the church are the evangelist and the pastor teacher. We've talked about that. Now, we come to these last gifts of evangelist and pastor teacher, and we're going to add to that the gift or the, the office of elder and deacon. Now, here's the question. Here's the question. How many offices do we have in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church? Do we have the two offices of elder and deacon, or do we have three offices, the offices of minister, ruling elder, and deacon? Now, opinions vary on this. Some in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church have a two-office view, while some in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church have a three-office view. And then there's also a mediating view called the two-and-a-half-office view. Wouldn't, wouldn't you think? Okay. So, now, in our study, it's not my um, desire to solve the problem. Um, there are those who are going to disagree with me today, but I think my view is going to be okay with both views. Okay. <laughs> but there's those who are going to disagree with me today, and that's totally fine. But we in the church, we have the office of minister and his focus is preaching and teaching. We have an office of ruling elder, and his focus is that of ruling and administrating. And then we have an office of deacon, and his primary focus is that of mercy ministry and serving the body of Christ. Now, even in the OPC, the people are the men who hold a two-office view. They recognize this distinction. They recognize the minister has been called by God to preach the gospel. They recognize that the minister has been called by God to stand up. He has to meet certain educational requirements. He has to go to school for three years. He has to have a degree most of the time. He has to go through licensure requirements. He has to go through ordination requirements. There's a number, Brian, a number of papers you will have to write, a number of sermons you will have to preach, and you will have to do all these different things. There's some discomfort to becoming a medical doctor. There's some discomfort to becoming a, an organ, organ performance or, you know, organist. There's some discomfort, correct? And there's some discomfort in becoming a minister. Now, whether a person it holds the two-office view or a three-office view, we operate in the OPC like a three-office church. <laughs> if you go look at our book of church order, we operate as if we are a three-office church, to, regardless of whether we say we're two, two-and-a-half, or three offices. So my goal this morning is to, to bring before you what the minister does and also to detail a little bit about what the ruling elder does. And next week we will capitalize on what the ruling elders do as a session. Unless, is next week's Thanksgiving Sunday? Or is it the next week after that? Well, I may preach a Thanksgiving sermon. But what are the ruling elders doing? Well, the ruling elders are the men that... 
um, guide the church. They give decisions and help the decision-making of the church. They shepherd the folks in the church. And they, are, they arise out of the congregation itself. The congregation is to take note of its men. It's to take note of those who have gifts, to watch them and see what they do. And then the, the church will sit and they will elect their own men to be ruling elders. Also the same thing is true of deacons. If you go to Acts chapter 6, you'll see that the apostles told the congregation to elect from among themselves men who were filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with wisdom. Now, here's the first point. The office of minister and the office of elder did not just spring up in the New Testament as if they had never existed before. It's easy to assume as we come to the New Testament to just say, well, here's this elder and here's uh, these, these ministers. Well, all of these things have Old Testament roots. In the Old Testament church, there were men who were called to word and sacrament sacrament ministry, and there were men who were elected from among the people to be elders. Now, just to whet your appetite, the office of elder, it first existed It first existed in families. The, el the patriarchs, Abraham, he was an elder among his family. And then we see there were elders among clans in Israel. And then what Mr. Seben read just a few moments ago, this is where the elder became a, 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 an ecclesiastical office. Elders became an office in the church in Exodus 18, 14 through 22. Remember, Moses is overwhelmed with all the work that's been in front of him. And Jethro comes and says, you're going to work yourself to death. And so he says, listen, I'm going to tell you, I want you to go find these men. Select these men from among the body of men. They need to be fine men. They need to be men of character. And they need to be men who are are godly men who won't take bribes, elect these men to help give counsel and render judgments and decisions. And so this is where we get for officially elders come into view. And we're going to see this view. We're going to see elders in the New Testament in a few minutes. Also in the Old Testament, the ministry of word and sacrament was entrusted to the priesthood that arose out of the tribe of Levi. Now, this is what Moses says in Deuteronomy 33, 9 through 10, in regard to the tribe of Levi. Verse 9, Deuteronomy 33, 9. Who said of his father and his mother, I did not consider them, and he did not consider his brothers, nor did he regard his own souls. These are the key words. For they, the Levites, observed your word and kept your covenant. The Levites, they, shall teach your ordinances to Jacob, and your law to Israel, they shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. So the priests arising out of the tribe of Levi throughout the Old Testament, they are the ones who are, who are going to be word and sacrament, ministers of word and sacrament. They will rule along with the elders. But at the same time, they are mainly going to preach, they are going to teach, they are going to superintend the worship of God. The elders are going to rule, they are going to administer, they are going to make judgments and provide counsel. So all of this to say that the, out of from among the Levites, God chooses one tribe. God chooses the tribe. God chooses these men to be word and sacrament ministers. And then on the other hand, 
the, the elders arise from the body of the people. The people choose their elders. They choose those who will rule and guide and give direction to the church, and God chooses this tribe to be the one who preaches and teaches throughout Israel. One is designated by God. One is designated by the people. Now, just for some clarification, as we move through the Old Testament, immediately prior to the Babylonian captivity, you'll remember in 586, Superman Nebuchadnezzar, I love to say that, he was a Superman. He was really a Superman. And he comes into existence, he goes to Jerusalem, he levels the walls, he takes down the temple, and he takes all the people into captivity. And the reason he does so is because of the idolatry of the people in Judah. And so the covenant curses fall on the people, and God allows his people to be taken captive. But while they are in Babylon, something happens that we don't think about very much. Where does preaching come from? It starts there. It's really in Babylon that this preaching begins to take on some steam because what happens is you don't have a place to sacrifice anymore. There's no temple. There's no altar. None of these things can take place. And so the priests who were in Babylon, they begin to do what? They begin to teach more. The Word of God becomes very pro- the priority while they're in Babylon. And so here they are. You, we think, oh, this is a terrible thing. This is, well, it was. They were experiencing the covenant curses, but God was still at work. And when you come to 445 B.C., you see Ezra the priest and Ezra the scribe, both he's called both. He comes back into the land. They rebuild the walls. Nehemiah's rebuilding the walls. And Ezra the priest, he stands in front of the people. And guess what he stands behind? A wooden podium. <laughs> and what is he going to do? He reads the Bible from early in the morning till late in the afternoon, and all the Levites are out there helping the people to understand what he's saying. And so all the people begin to cry, and they begin to, to weep over their sins, and the men have to like literally bolster them up and say, it's not the day to be this sad. <laughs> and so there's this preaching we see for the first time. He's, he's standing behind a, a pulpit, if you will, for the first time we see it. And we see that Ezra is a man who devoted himself to the law of the Lord. He devoted himself to study it and to practice it in his own heart first. And then he would go out and teach it to others after that. So first, we see that that second point is this, the office of minister and the office of elder in the New Testament. It came from somewhere, guys. It came out of the Old Testament, and then we move into the New Testament, and we should expect to see these offices continuing. We should expect the office of ruler, of elder, of somebody who makes decisions, and we should be looking for a minister or a man who does word and sacrament ministry. And so when we come to the New Testament, Jesus is on the scene, and we see priests, you know, the, the, the ones we don't like at first. We see priests and we see elders, the, the first group we don't really like too much, but we're going to like the ones in Acts better, okay? So stick with me. When you come to Acts chapter uh, 11, here's something that's very unique. You come to Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30, and there's a whole body of elders. Where did they come from? Well, they, they came from the fact that this is these, all these men who start this church in the New Testament, they have Old Testament roots. They have their roots in the Old Testament. They, they elected their own elders from amongst themselves. And so we have a whole body of elders in Acts chapter 11. We don't even see them say, we're going to elect them, we're going to choose them. They just did it. 
And so we should expect uh, also to look for a minister of word and sacrament as well. But, but where is he? Where is the minister of word and sacrament? We see the elders already there in Acts 11. And so we're looking for them. And we see in Acts chapter 6, I just said it to you a few minutes ago, that the, the apostles, they said, you guys, there's been a glitch in the servant of the tables. And so they say, you guys, church, church of Jerusalem, elect for yourselves your own deacons to take care of the tables and take care of the ministry of mercy so that we can go on and pray and preach. So right now, the apostles are the ones who are doing word and sacrament ministry. But we're looking for an ordinary minister. We're looking for someone to do the sacrament. We're looking for uh, the minister of the word, and we don't see him yet. Um, but we have to look for him because we know the, that these uh, apostles and these prophets are going to go off the scene. And so if you have your Bibles open to First Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, this is a key verse when it comes to what I'm putting before you this morning. It says there in 1 Timothy 5, 17, it says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So, this is a very pivotal passage for a three-office view of the uh, offices in the church. It speaks of elders who rule well, being worthy of double honor. And it speaks of elders who preach and teach, who work hard at laboring after preaching and teaching. You see the, the division of labor going on here. We see one elder who rules. We see another elder who gives himself to the preaching and to the teaching. The term elder is used for both of those men. One rules, one rules, and teaches as well. Let me give you an illustration of this from Acts chapter 15. Now, in Acts chapter 15, that's a time where there's going to be what we call the Jerusalem Council. And all the elders are gathering for the Jerusalem Council. And the apostles are coming to this Jerusalem Council. And here's the doctrinal issue that's on everybody's mind. Do those from among the Gentiles... Do they have to believe in Jesus plus obey the law of Moses to be saved? Do those who are turning to Jesus by faith, let's, let's boil it all down to one thing. Do they have to be circumcised and believe? And so these men are coming together. Like a Presbytery meeting or like a General Assembly we have in the OPC, they come together and they're going to make a decision. And the apostles and the elders are going to rule together. They're equals in that room. And so when it's all said and done, they make their decision. It's by faith in Jesus Christ alone, apart from any works of the law. You don't have to be circumcised to be saved, in other words. And at the end of the day, though, the apostles walk out, and they are elders, and the elders walk out, but they're not what? They're not apostles. Because, you see, only certain guys, only certain men are apostles, those who have been chosen by Jesus Christ, those who have seen His resurrected body, and those who lay down in the Scriptures the, the, the foundation of the church. So we see the same thing going on here in 1 Timothy 5.17. We see ministers or elders, 
And we see ministers are elders who rule, and ministers are elders who preach and teach, and then there's other elders who rule. Now, again, I'm not maybe going to convince everybody about my view here, but I think there is a division of labor here that's being, being laid out in front of us. From the Old Testament, we derive these two offices, one of rule and one of teaching and preaching. Now, as we look at this view that I've laid in front of you, I want to give you some implications of it as in regard to 1 Timothy 3. Now, it'd be great if we had 30 more minutes, you know, to, uh, to keep, just go through every passage. But let me tell you what, what um, I want to um, about 1 Timothy 3. The question is this. Is the Apostle Paul saying that all the elders must be apt to teach? Now, I think in some regard, the answer is yes. But I would argue that they don't all have to be apt to teach like a minister. This is the popular view. Every, every elder has to be apt to teach. We read about the character that's called for, and we read that every man must be apt to teach. But if we look at the view that I've just said in front of you, that some elders rule and some elders rule and teach... We can look at this passage like this. We can say that the Apostle Paul is enumerating all the qualifications of the office of elder. And all the elders are to be marked by monogamy. The elders who rule are to be one woman, one woman men. And the elders who rule and teach are to be one woman men, right? <laughs> one woman. Try not to say women. Monogamous. Every elder is to have certain character, and those who rule are to be very uh, definitely gifted at ruling, and those who preach are to be definitely gifted to preach. I think we could see this First um, Timothy 3 in this way. We don't all have to be apt to teach to be an elder, apt to teach in some regards as the minister. Now, when we say an elder who rules does not teach, let me give you my footnote here. We're not saying that we're going to go find elders and say, okay, well, it doesn't matter whether you read or not. <laughs> we're not going to say we're looking for a guy and it doesn't matter whether you study the Bible or not. We're not looking for a person who doesn't read his Bible to his family and pray with his family. We're looking for that guy. That's who we're looking for. But he may not be... He may not feel himself to be as apt to teach as a minister. He may not feel himself apt to teach. And you as a church may say, this guy, I want him to be an elder because he's a shepherd. He's somebody who takes care of my soul. He's somebody who can give great counsel. Uh, that's what we're looking for. I think the argument I'm trying to make is this. I've met many men who wouldn't be elders because they felt like they weren't apt to teach, and yet they were very, very gifted at shepherding. They're very, very gifted at counseling, and they may not want to stand up and teach a Sunday school class. Maybe we ought to try to convince them. <laughs> but I think we can view this this way. He's willing uh, to, to come and be a shepherd of the church. Now, again, back to the minister. The minister, he's going to do something different. The minister, unlike a ruling elder, he's going to have to go through a whole lot of discomfort. He's going to be tested. He's going to be evaluated. It's, it's one, one of the things, like one of the things, it's like you uh, coming out of my background, 
you could say you're called to be a minister. If you say you're called to be a minister among the OPC, the church has to approve that. The church has to agree with you. So you're immediately up against the fact that, okay, I've got this invisible call from God, but will the church see the same thing? And so now the church sends me to go be uh, come under care, and then I have to go to seminary, and then when I'm done, I have to be evaluated, and the church has to agree with me, and the presbytery has to uh, agree with my call. And will they? Sometimes it's sort of painful to get behind the pulpit. Um, I used to say, I used to say that uh, sometimes we may not like who preaches behind the pulpit, but I used to say everybody who's behind the pulpit in the OPC, he got there and it wasn't easy. Okay, in fact, I would say to you guys, um, I, I've preached a sermon on this. If you're if you're struggling with listening to somebody's preaching, I'd say that you need to go prepare your hearts to listen to the person preach because usually he has something to say, and it may be a problem with our own attitude. With this view in mind, let me give you a few more verses. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, and 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, and we're going to finish with chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. In chapter 2, verse 2, uh, Timothy, Paul addresses him and says, These things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Again, here we're not looking at the elder who rules. We're looking at the elder who preaches and teaches. And he says, he's telling Timothy, he's the preacher, he's the minister of word and sacrament to Ephesus. He tells him to take this truth, this deposit that I've given to you in the presence of many witnesses, and I want you to find faithful men, 1 Timothy chapter 3, godly men, men of character chapter 3, 1 Timothy, and I want you to find these guys, and I want you to teach these men so that they can give it away to others as well. He's telling him to train word and sacrament preachers. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 15, the apostle Paul tells Timothy again, he says, I want you to handle accurately the word of truth. That is what the minister does. And finally, I want to finish with 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Now, as we look at that, that was that passage I read to you at the very beginning. And the minister is addressed and charged explicitly but the congregation is implicitly charged. The minister is charged to do something, but the congregation is not even spoken of. But the congregation is assumed to be there, and they're to do something. And we'll talk about that something in a minute. But the minister, we hear in 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, he says, as Paul says, I solemnly charge you, minister, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. So here is a solemn charge. It's solemn. The word charge there, it's, it's the idea of being in a courtroom. The preacher, when he preaches, he's to preach. He's to preach the truth and nothing but the truth. He's to preach the word and nothing but the word. So help him God. He's to stand in front of the pulpit. He's to preach and realize that he's in the presence not just of the people first, but of God and Jesus Christ first. The first audience to please is not the people. The first audience to please is God. And if the minister gets that right, everything stays okay. He's got to please God first. It should energize him as he stands in front of the pulpit, not just to take care of the people, but to make sure God is pleased with everything that he says. 
He's under the watchful eye of God. It's a solemn charge. It's a, it's a charge that's substantial. It's a substantial charge. The substance of the charge is to preach the word. And there are five um, imperatives. Now, this, is, this could be a long sermon, so I'm giving you just the bullets. These are five uh, imperatives. The first one is preach the word. What's he to preach? Well, if you just go through 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy and 1 Timothy, you can find out that you're, he's supposed to preach a God-inspired, God-breathed word. He's to preach that word that his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice had read to him and taught him from a youth. And from that, he became a Christian through faith in Christ. He's to preach the word the Apostle Paul deposited in him. He's to preach the word that he's depositing in other men. He's to preach the word. Gospel ministers are to stand, if you will, on a street corner like it says in Proverbs 1, like wisdom does on a street corner, and shout to the unwise and the simple to be saved. This is a matter of life and death. It's of great importance. He must lift up his voice and not be afraid, not be fearful. So we see it's a solemn charge. It's a, it's a substantial charge. And we see the scope of the charge is this. He is to preach the Word. He's told when to do it and how to do it. How do you preach? You've got to be ready. It's a sense of urgency. The solemnity of the charge and the substance of the charge dictates urgency. And now, you know, I, I, I wrote this in my notes. When, when, when a minister does a funeral... It's a solemn thing. But I would say to you, he's not totally grim. I mean, every funeral service I've ever done, I usually get somebody to smile. It's not totally grim. But it is serious. Because when you're sitting here and you're putting a coffin in the ground, that's pretty serious stuff. And every time we preach, we're talking about life and we're talking about death. And when you stand in front of somebody's loved one who's died, you open up life and death. And you're telling people every single Sunday there's somebody who went to the cross for you to save sinners from their sins. All of us, all of us are under the wrath and curse of God and only God can save us and God has determined to save us. He's the one John 3.16, who gives life everlasting because He gave His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins on the cross. Life and death all the time. Preach the Word, number one. Be ready, number two. Reprove. Reprove. What's that mean? That means correct. You know, every time we could talk, we could preach a whole sermon on this. Every time we come to the Word of God and preach a sermon, every time you walk in the door, you're being corrected. Not like a mom, not, you know, but it's, it's a discipline. It's a discipline. The Word of God is coming across your brain right now. And you may have started this week to kind of deviate to the left. You may have started deviating to the right. And then you hear the Word of God and it smooths you back and corrects you right back on, online so that you don't end up over here ten, 10 years down the road. You know, that's what we're doing here. The Word of God reorients us to the truth. Go read Psalm 73 where it says that this man thought it was not a good thing to be a holy man. And then when he went to church, his brain got, was set to right. He said, I see what's going on with the ungodly. They're going to be destroyed. So we come, we need to be corrected. And finally, I mean another one. The fourth is rebuke. What's that mean? <laughs> well, let me tell you what it means. It means stop. <laughs> Stop doing the wrong thing. That's what it means. 
And let me tell you, parents, take, this, take note of this. Stop means love. Young people, when mom and dad say stop, they mean love. You need to hear stop sometimes, and that means they love you. They tell you to stop doing what is wrong, and they redirect you towards what is right. And then the fifth uh, imperative is this, exhort. Don't you need to be encouraged? I need to be encouraged. <laughs> Don't you need to be encouraged? Did you hear what we read today in that call to worship? Oh, you, God, who hear prayer. God calls himself a God who, I, I, that encourages me. Did you hear what we read in the call to worship today? This is a God who chooses us and he brings us near to him. I needed to hear that. I need to know that he writes his name on my palm. I need to know that Jesus Christ holds me in the palm of his hand. I need to know that the Father holds me in his hand. I need to know these things. I need to rehearse these things. I need to be encouraged. I need to be encouraged that I'm given grace to keep going. How is the word to be preached? Be ready. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. He says with patience. We could talk about this a long time. But what does the minister do? He has to be patient. He has to wait on the Word and the Spirit to work together to change daddies and mamas and kids. So this is how. What about when? Well, we're told he's supposed to preach in season and out of season. The preacher's supposed to preach when it's convenient and not convenient. The preacher's supposed to preach when everybody loves it and when everybody has itching ears to hear something else. And he's to preach, not cave in to the culture. He's not to preach to be liked, although every minister that I know likes to be liked. <laughs> He's not to preach to be on the right side of history. Man, how many times have we heard that in the past three years? I want to be on the right side of history. I want to be on the right side of God. <laughs> I don't want to offend God. Jesus is the only way. He's the only way to life, everlasting as we were saying. And so as we come, we have, as we come and think about these things in church, we have elders who rule, we have elders who rule and preach and teach. And the first priority of the elder that rules is to administer and to shepherd and tend. And the first priority for the minister that preaches and teaches is to preach the word. Now, here's how we end. The minister is explicitly charged to preach the word. What's the congregation to do while the minister preaches the word? Well, it starts with an L and it ends with an N. Listen, right? Or we could say here in our shorter catechism, and you can go study this with your family later on today. Question 90, it says this. How is the word to be read and heard that it may become effectual to salvation? Now, here's the answer. That the word may become effectual to salvation... We must attend thereunto with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Mark that down. We must receive it, when it's read and preached, with faith and love. Number two. We must lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Number three. Three things. Three things. So, so here, here we go. Before you come, here's what you're supposed to do. Before you come to hear the word of God read and preached, here's what you're supposed to do pray. You get yourself ready. You get your family ready. You prepare yourself during the week. Then when you get here, then the word is read. The word is preached. What are you supposed to do? You receive it with a heart of faith and you receive it with a heart of love. And then when you walk out of here, there's the, it's not over yet. 
When you go home today, what are you to do? You're to lay it up in your hearts. You're to take what you heard. You're to lay it up in your hearts. You're to meditate on it. And you walk out and you go out and practice it in your lives. So we have elders that rule. We have elders that rule and teach. And all God's people ought to say, Thank you, God, for gift men who love me, men who care about me, men who tend to me, to the glory of God. We'll talk about ruling elders later. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for, uh, Lord, teaching us about the gifts of your church. And Father, we pray as we meditate on these things, Lord, that we might be those who are looking for godly qualities in men. Help us to discern and to know as the time goes by in this congregation what to do when it comes to choosing elders and deacons and choosing a pastor in the future as well. And Father, we do thank you for these gifts because we know that through these gifts we are tended to, we are cared for, we are shepherded. Lord, that you love us and you're the giver of all these gifts. We praise you for it. We thank you for this, this time to spend with you in the word. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.